Welcome to the podcast. This is called Witch Busting. If you watched Blackadder back in the day, you might remember the series set in the late 15th century and the episode involving the witch smeller Poursuivant, in which Prince Edmund at Blackadder is accused of witchcraft by the eponymous witch smeller Poursuivant, played by Frank Findlay. Basically, the entire kingdom falls prey to the mass hysteria of the witch hunt. Blackadder goes on the road with Percy and Baldrick to find out the truth. And on being heard by the witch-smeller boasting about his plans to give the latter a boot up the backside, Blackadder is himself accused. There is a trial, in which Blackadder is dubbed the Great Gumbleduke with a familiar cat named Bubbles. Clearly, the witch-smeller says, a diminutive of Bubbles. Blackadder is also accused of having had sex with his horse, who leaves the signed confession, and with an elderly peasant woman who then gives birth to a poodle. The trio are found guilty. Baldrick does manage to get them out of this sticky situation by means of a teleportation spell, but it lands them in the Mad King's chambers. I think he's got bubonic plague or something nasty. The Queen, Blackadder's mum in this particular incarnation of our heroes, is no help at all and merely gives them a little dolly for comfort. They are rearrested and taken to the stake. Panicking as the flames rise higher, Blackadder drops the dolly and it catches fire, and so does the witch smeller, burning to death. Hooray! All is saved. The Queen is not useless after all, and the sparks that fly from her eyes in the final scene are a clue to the fact that there are real witches after all. So all this is pretty hilarious, but as with many Blackadder episodes, there's a grain of truth at the heart of the comedy. People, particularly women, were persecuted as witches, and as we saw in the last episode of Witchbusting, which covered the Pendle witch trials, we saw then a number of women accused of witchcraft and probably weren't witches at all. But who were the people doing the persecuting? And I'm afraid this is the point where the laughs pretty much dry up. So if you're of a sensitive disposition or feeling a bit fragile, you might want to save this episode for when you're feeling a bit more robust. In the Pendle trials, if you listen to our first episode, you may remember that a local magistrate was involved. Some historians think that he wanted the land belonging to one of the witches, so-called witches. This is the case of a pretty nasty guy seeing an opportunity to get someone out of the way to his own advantage. Sadly, that happens all the time in every part of the world. In the Pendle case, there was no official witch finder. But was there ever a real witch-smeller persuivant? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Today, we're going to look at Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. That sounds like a pretty impressive title. These days, we have vaccine czars and attorney generals, and these are political appointees who wield a significant degree of clout. And in those days, Oliver Cromwell himself, whom we'll return to shortly, 
was the Lord General before he became the Lord Protector. But Hopkins wasn't official in any way. Witchfinder General was a title that he adopted himself. He wasn't appointed by the government or by the church. In fact, as we shall see, members of the church constituted some of Hopkins' greatest enemies, and Parliament wasn't very fond of him either. So who was this Witchfinder General? Hopkins was born around 1620, but we don't know exactly when. He might have been born a little later than this date. There aren't many records of him or his family before he started his career as a witchfinder. We do know where he was born, in Great Wenham in Suffolk. His father was a Puritan minister, the vicar of St John's. When he was still quite young, Hopkins used an inheritance to buy the Thorn Inn near Manningtree in Essex and set himself up as a gentleman. There has been some suggestion that he trained as a lawyer, but there's no direct evidence of this. But Hopkins doesn't seem to have been content just running a pub. Instead, he turned to an alternative career, that of witch hunting. And unfortunately, he was pretty good at it. So was his friend John Stern, also from Suffolk, a landowner near Bury St Edmunds, and about a decade older than Hopkins. He met Hopkins, perhaps in the pub, and recruited the young innkeeper as his assistant. In the still of the night, if you're quiet you might just hear so these were not gnarly old men. They're fit young dudes with a mission and a lot of energy with which to carry it out. Hopkins claimed to have kicked off the witch hunting after overhearing a conversation between some women in Manningtree about a concourse with the devil. But the pair's activities seemed to actually have begun with accusations made by Stern himself. Between 23 and 29 women, exact figures vary, were tried in Chelmsford in 1645 by J.P.'s overseen by the Earl of Warwick. This wasn't the first time Chelmsford had seen witch trials, by the way. They'd happened before. But this wasn't a normal trial. Historian Ronald Hutton told us that some of Hopkins' success was due to the very upheaval caused by the Civil War. We have to remember that it was a very disrupted period of English history from 1642 to 1651. Roundheads and Cavaliers were battling over the way in which England should be governed. In 1649, actually after Hopkins' campaign had ended, Charles I was executed, sending a shockwave through society. It must have seemed as though everything was being turned upside down. The old order was collapsing, with gentleman farmer turned soldier Oliver Cromwell as the pivot. Cromwell himself was from Huntingdon, and he stood as Member of Parliament for Huntingdon and then Cambridge. And at one point he lived in Ely. He attended Sydney Sussex College, which is still there today. But at the time, it was a relatively new institution with a strong Puritan sensibility. Of course, Cromwell had that too. Cromwell's story is bound up with the history of the Fen country, East Anglia, and this part of England was strongly for the parliamentarians. It was an area heavily influenced by Puritanism. It was also a time of considerable superstition. One pamphlet reads, Have there not been strange comets seen in the air? Prodigies? Sights on the seas? Marvellous tempests and storms on the land? Have not nature altered her course so much that woman framed of flesh and blood bringeth forth ugly and deformed monsters. 
More prosaically, Ronald said to me once that the disruption of the war caused the collapse of the assize system. So let's take a quick look at this. The assizes were courts. They were held in the main county towns and presided over by visiting judges from the higher courts in London. England and Wales were divided into six judicial circuits in the 12th century, and these circuits covered the areas under the jurisdictions of the various judges. This system was substantially disrupted by the English Civil War, but it only actually ceased in 1971. The circuits are still in place today. One of our friends is a judge on one of these very circuits. Simon Stevens says that during the Civil War, moreover, much of the local justice system ceased to function. Parliament declared assizes illegal, and in many counties, quarter sessions ceased to take place. The functions of the JPs were often taken over by the county committees, but these were overburdened and acted only erratically. Pennington refers to their constant struggle to offer some haphazard justice and relief to a community where war destroyed both respect for law and order and the means of enforcing them. So normally, the women accused by Stern would have been tried at the Assizes by the justices of the Assizes, with juries who would be strangers to the district and thus might be more impartial. But instead their case was heard by justices of the peace. The war had left a power vacuum and Stern and Hopkins seemed to have taken advantage of it. Both men claimed to be hired by Parliament, but this actually wasn't true. Cromwell himself didn't make any statements regarding witchcraft, although his grandparents had been involved in a sensational witch trial. And, of course, Cromwell himself was also later accused of being a witch, which we'll come to in our next podcast. Thus, there was no one in an official legal capacity to challenge Hopkins and Stern's self-assumed authority and put some brakes on it. The first trial, from their point of view, was a huge success. Four of the women they accused died in prison, 19 were convicted and hanged, and as we mentioned in relation to Pendle, witches in England were usually hanged rather than burned at stake. Hopkins and Stern's career as witch hunters were taken off a flying start. They set off across eastern parts of the country, Suffolk, Essex, Norfolk, Cambridge and Huntingdonshire, even Northamptonshire and Bedfordshire, with a team of prickers, women who could divine whether somebody was a witch or not by pricking their skin with a special needle, a bodkin. Witches were said to have a special mark, a mole or a wart, which would not bleed when stuck with a pin. The mark was supposed to be a third nipple, a la Scaramanga in the James Bond films. But according to Hopkins, it could just be a birthmark or a mole. And unfortunately, most people have one of those. We know from witch-pricking needles that have lasted into the present day that many of these devices used by the prickers had a retractable point or a dull end and a sharp end, which could be used through sleight of hand to draw blood on ordinary skin and then leave the witch mark unharmed. You couldn't actually be convicted if you had a mark that did not bleed, but it was considered good supporting evidence. Hopkins used sleep deprivation too, and today his techniques would be familiar to professional torturers. Although torture was actually illegal in England at this point, sleep deprivation didn't count. He also used the swimming test, in which an accused person was tied to a chair and thrown into water, 
or in some cases minus the chair, but with her right thumb tied to her left big toe. If she floated, she was a witch. If she didn't, she presumably was either hauled out or, more probably, actually drowned. The idea behind this was that if you were a witch, you had rejected your baptism, and thus water would reject you. Ducking people like this was in fact illegal at this period. It was regarded as assault, and if someone died, it was treated as murder. Hopkins was warned against ducking people without their permission. It's really hard to see who would say, yeah, let's go ahead, let's give it a shot. And he was forced to give up the practice around 1645, so he had to rely on the devil's mark instead. Hopkins' first victim was an 80-year-old woman with only one leg, Elizabeth Clark. After being interrogated for three days, she confessed to having had relations with the devil. It's like the Pendle case that we looked at in our first episode. A lot of the victims may not have been liked by their neighbours, and some of them were very vulnerable. The Witchfinder's investigations were based on the demonology of King James. We know this from Hopkins' own book, The Discovery of Witches. He also made use of Dalton's Counter Justice, a top-selling legal handbook in which magistrates were advised not always to expect direct evidence from witches, seeing all their works are the works of darkness. This leaves investigation a really big margin of error. I think we need to consider at this point that the people aiding and abetting Hopkins and Stone were themselves often female. Not all witch pickers were. In Scotland, many of them were male. But although there's a strong case to be made for misogyny here, it does need to be taken into account that this misogyny, as is often the case because it's institutional, was supported by the actions of women as well. And a few men were victims too, such as the church minister for Brandeston, John Lowes, who was 70 years old and disliked a lot by people in the parish because he was basically a nasty old man. But that doesn't mean he deserved the fate that happened to him. Hopkins kept him awake several nights together while running him backwards and forwards and about his cell until out of breath. After a brief rest, he then ran him again. And this they did for several days and nights together till he was weary for his life and scarce sensible of what he said or did. Lowe's finally confessed uh, he had covenanted with the devil, suckled familiars, being Tom, Flo, Bess and Mary for five years, and had bewitched cattle. He also caused a ship to sink off Harwich with the loss of 14 lives. With no evidence of this shipwreck ever took place, but Lowe's was convicted and, as a clergyman, he was denied clergy himself. He was obliged to recite his own funeral service on the way to the gallows. And now a word from the show's online sponsors, the Witchcraft Shop in Glastonbury, where you can find all your witchy, pagan and alternative health supplies, including incenses, oils, herbs, candles, wands and altar items. Or maybe even take a tarot reading. The Witchcraft Shop also offers courses in practical magic and conducts hand fasting and pagan ceremonies for celebrants. Many other products and services are also available on request. Visit www.witchcraftshop.co.uk and tell them which busting sent you. Why were these two men obsessed with finding and prosecuting witches? Were they religious fanatics? 
who had succumbed to the witch mania? Did they really believe that women across England were cursing and hexing their neighbours and had to be stopped? Or was there a simpler explanation? There is indeed. Historians seem to think that Hopkins was a genuine religious fanatic. But both Stern and Hopkins, and their female accomplices, made a considerable amount of money from witch hunting. And Hopkins said that he claimed 20 shillings a town, that his fees were to maintain his company with three horses. In Stowmarket, his fees were around £23, and although this doesn't sound like a lot, remember that this is hundreds of years ago. Today, that would be nearly £4,000. In 1645, Ipswich had to levy a special rate of tax in order to pay Hopkins and Stern for their services. To put this into perspective, the average daily wage was sixpence. So were these men local heroes then? It seems they were not. In fact, Parliament expressed considerable concern about their activities. A report from the Area 2 Parliament mentions as if some busy men had made use of all sorts of ill arts to extort some confession. The Moderate Intelligencer, which was a parliamentary newspaper, expressed considerable concern about this witch-hunting business in 1645. A special judicial commission was formed, the Commission of Oya and Termina, to assess more formally the backlog of witch trials and possibly to try and slow down Hopkins' progress. Parliamentary members weren't the only people getting twitchy about Hopkins. He had local enemies too. One of Hopkins' main opponents in 1646 was a vicar, John Gall of Great Stoughton. He'd been visiting a woman in jail in St Neots who had been accused of witchcraft and was waiting for Hopkins to rock up. It seems that Gall was suspicious of this and wrote a tract about it. Select cases of conscience touching witches and witchcraft, dedicated to one of the principal parliamentarians, Colonel Wharton. This was an analysis of... Hopkins and Stern's methods, and a criticism too. Every old woman with a wrinkled face, a furrowed brow, a hairy lip, a robber tooth, a squint eye, or a squeaky voice or scolding tongue, having a rugged coat on her back, a skull cap on her head, and a spindle in her hand, or a dog or a cat by her side, is not the only suspect to be pronounced for a witch. He then starts preaching a series of sermons against witch hunting. Gaul attended Liz's College, Magdalen, in Cambridge, and he was a well-known sceptic regarding witchcraft, astrology, and hermetic philosophy. Basically, he didn't believe in witchcraft, and if you don't believe in something in the first place, you won't believe in actions taken against it. But he had to differentiate between the work of magicians and the idea that of witches catching spells. So it seems he did give some credibility to magicians who were more respectable and educated men, but put witchcraft down to superstition. Gaul's beliefs have been described as legalistic and evidentiary, so he said that evidence needed to be stringent, although he did include circumstantial evidence in that. His notes were used in the Salem witch trials 50 years or so later as criteria by which witches could be evaluated. And then karma struck back. If a curse and she cast, stay forever Hopkins and Stern came to the attention of the justice system themselves. The justices were starting to ask questions about their methods. 
and whether those methods themselves constituted witchcraft. Hard questions were also being asked about the fees that they were charging to town authorities. Prudently, Hopkins and Stern retired before the case went to court and went back to Manningtree and Bury St Edmunds respectively in 1647. Their witch-hunting spree was over. But 1647 was a significant year for Hopkins, to put it mildly. It was the year in which his book, The Discovery of Witches, was published, but it was also the year in which he died. There's a legend in which he was subjected to the swimming test himself. This would have been a case of instant karma, but it isn't true. He probably died of pleural tuberculosis. Witchfinder General conjures up the image of some stern elderly fanatic, but Hopkins was young. He was only about 27 when he died. Remember, we don't know exactly when he was born, but he would still have been only in his 20s. Stern also published a book, A Confirmation and Discovery of Witchcraft, in 1648. He became subject to financial difficulties and ended up relying on relatives for handouts. He told people that he would have been richer if he had not become caught up in the witch-hunting craze and attended more to his own properties, which, despite what we've said about the lucrative nature of witch-hunting, lends credence to the argument that there were genuine religious reasons behind this crusade for both men. Stern died in 1670, by which time the monarchy had once more been in place for a decade. However, the damage had already been done. Stern and Hopkins were responsible for the trials of around 300 women in the 1640s and 100 deaths, about 60% of the total number of people executed for witchcraft in England. They were responsible for more people being sent to the gallows than any other witchfinders in England, remember this is not Scotland, in the previous 160 years. This was genuinely a reign of terror, and it continued in New England in America from the 1640s onwards, where Hopkins's unpleasant methods were adopted. Nor did witch trials in England die with Hopkins, but continued throughout the latter part of the 17th century. However, there was light at the end of this grim time. So in 1712, Jane Wenham of Hertfordshire stood trial before a sceptical judge for conversing familiarly with the devil in the shape of a cat. Talking to a cat, in other words. John Powell, the judge, stated there is no law against flying when told that Wenham was able to fly. She was found guilty by the jury and sentenced to hang, but the more sceptical judge set aside her conviction. She was pardoned by Queen Anne herself and supported by the local gentry for the rest of her life. This wasn't the last witch trial in Britain. Janet Horne was executed in 1727 in Scotland, but it is often held to mark, thankfully, the end of the persecution. In the still of the night, if you're quiet, you might just hear a word. The sound from the trees is your name on the breeze. Of the witch may be hidden from view. The spell of a 
Busting was brought to you by Trevor Jones and Dr Liz Williams. The producer was Ross Hemsworth for Remote Highway Media. The music, Night of the Witch, was written and composed by Ross Hemsworth.